following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. For the remainder of this summer, we're going to be reading and studying the book of Psalms together. We've selected 13 different Psalms scattered throughout the book of Psalms, each representing a various emotion or theme as a cross-section of the entire Psalter. And the book of Psalms are important. And in fact, as I get older, and I trust as the Lord works in me and through me, the more convinced I am that the book of Psalms is the most important book of the Bible. That's not to pit it against any other part of God's Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God and therefore profitable for the Christian, for the training of righteousness. But there's something about the book of Psalms, about each one of these, that resonates with the Christian life in a unique way that over and over and over again refreshes the soul of the weary pilgrim. And so, yes, you may love to trudge through the Pentateuch and Leviticus and to get into the details of the law and see how Christ is is seen in a shadow in the temple and in the priesthood. Or you may enjoy reading Jesus' own precious words in the Gospels and reading the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, and you may love to get into the arguments and the logic of Paul's epistles in Romans or in Ephesians, but there's something about the Psalms that when you come to them, they seem to speak your language. It's been said that there's a psalm for every sigh of the soul. There's something beautiful about the Psalms, not simply because they're written in poetry, but because they speak to every human emotion We read them as we would read our own lives. And the Psalms become a touchstone for us, week in and week out. And if you don't already make a habit of reading the Psalms regularly, daily, I would encourage you and commend to you that practice. Because you begin to, as you read them, grow with an instinct of godliness. Because what the Psalms do is shape our responses to life circumstances, the highs and the lows. We get to experience the difficulties along with David as he flees from his enemies. And we get to experience the triumphs with Israel as they see God working in their midst. We get to cast our doubts and our fears with the psalmist at the feet of God. And we can hear the same answer responding to them as to us. The psalms give us this instinct and this impulse of godliness, whatever may happen in our lives, by giving us a vision of the Christian life. They give us a vision of the faithfulness and the beauty and the diversity of the Christian life in God's Word. And so they bring us closer to God Himself. And our lives then are shaped by the kinds of calls and responses that we see in the Psalms. And so they become an important, life-sustaining book as much as any other in Scripture for us. And it's that vision of God that we want to focus on this morning as we begin our summer series in the book of Psalms. Because vision, vision matters. It it matters not only in theological faithfulness and doctrinal importance, but our vision of God matters in every area of our life, particularly in those places which the Bible describes as a wilderness, that sort of dry land where we feel left to die, as it were, 
wandering or perhaps on the flee for our own life as David will be in the psalm we'll read in a moment. In the wildernesses of our lives, the vision we have of God matters about how we are sustained through those seasons and those circumstances. How we're sustained in the difficult and dry places that are inevitable in every life. It is our vision of God that will ultimately anchor us to hope. And so the desert circumstances of our lives need not be the spiritually dry and desolate places and seasons of our faith. In fact, it's often the case that God uses such places and uses such trials and periods in our lives to grow and nurture our faith in the midst of those. To allow us to drink more directly from the stream of God's flowing grace and mercy that supplies every need. It's in those moments that often we are most spiritually nourished. And the older we get, perhaps the more we can look back with paradoxical fondness of the trials of our life for what God has done through them. So the main idea then this morning is that supreme joy in the midst of hardship comes from a vision of God that is bigger and better than life. Supreme joy in the midst of hardship comes from a vision of God that is bigger and better than life. Let's read Psalm 63, and then I'll invite you to give thanks to God as, I'm, as I close. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So have I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those, those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depth of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So consider the setting we see there in the title of the psalm. It says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. David spent a lot of time in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem. If you're familiar with the story in Samuel, we know that Saul, uh, that Saul often chased him after he was anointed out of jealous rage and anger. But this is not David's circumstance. David, we see from verse 11, is already king. He refers to himself as king, something he would not do while Saul was still alive. So this instead refers to David's fleeing into the wilderness outside of Jerusalem by his own son, Absalom, who's rebelling against David's kingdom to usurp his throne 
and to set himself up as king. So David leaves, and we read about this in 2 Samuel chapters 15 and 16 and onwards, until Absalom is ultimately put to death. So David is forced to flee to the desert wilderness, hide as he did in caves from Saul, now from his own son. We see that he, though in this wilderness and in this desert, still finds time to compose a hymn, to remember God's faithfulness in the midst of his own difficult circumstances. And it is this psalm which casts a vision of God for those who are also in a wilderness. Matthew Henry, the commentator, would say that all the straits and difficulties of a wilderness must not put us out of tune for sacred songs. Despite the fact that David, king, now has the entire throne in jeopardy because his son has come against him and has been forced to flee for who knows how long, has found time to sing and compose this hymn, the foundational song of his vision for God that would sustain him in this season. Or as Spurgeon would say, there was no desert in his heart, though there was a desert around him. That just sort of sets the, 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 the scene for us. David's heart is overflowing in love for God, despite the enmity in the wilderness around him. The desolation which surrounds him is in view, but pales in comparison to his own vision of God. And it is to that vision which we look. David expresses in the psalm here three simple realities about his relationship with God that determines his perspective or his vision of his circumstances. His vision about God, expressed in three simple realities, shape his vision and the perspective on his circumstances. He says these three things. First, God is my desire. We see this in the first four verses. God is my desire. Secondly, God is my delight. In verse 5 through 8. And in verses 9 through 11, he expresses the truth that God is my defense. God is my desire. God is my delight. God is my defense. Notice the language of desire there in verse 1. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Your translation may have it. Early, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Or another translation, yearns for you. This is the language of desire, of longing, of, of desperation for having something out of reach. The setting itself elevates this desire, this longing. He is in a dry and weary land. I think here the ESV inaccurately translates that as is not actually in the text. My flesh faints for you, my soul thirsts for you in this dry and weary land where there is no water. Literally, in the desert, while I thirst and hunger for food and drink, my soul and flesh hungers and thirsts for God. It elevates the desire. The setting elevates the desire for God. 
Or in other words, despite the very real hunger and the very real thirst David experiences in the hard desert wilderness, his chief desire is not for food or drink, but for God himself. Well, what truths about God was David expressing that compelled his earnest desire? Again, the first phrase in verse 1 points us to two wonderful truths. It says, O God, you are my God. He begins this song declaring that God is his God. And two wonderful truths can be displayed here. First, that God is almighty, omnipotent, strong, and sovereign. It is God who governs the world and all the affairs of men. O God, he says, God who holds all things in his hands. Though man may plan his step, God directs his ways. It is God who created the earth, God who created the wilderness. And he cries out to the almighty, omnipotent, strong, and sovereign God. But he says, O oh God, you are my God. So the first truth is that God is sovereign, but the second is that God is known. And he is known particularly by his people through covenant and promise. David is no doubt recalling the promise from 2 Samuel 7 that God made that he would establish on David's throne a king that would last forever. The promise that David's house would go on to establish a kingdom into eternity. This promise David remembers. O oh God, you are my God. He remembers the covenant that God made with the people, Israel, in Exodus 19, at the foot of Mount Sinai. He remembers the regular promises and reminders of this promise all throughout Israel's wandering and disobedience and the faithfulness and the grace and the forgiveness of God to reestablish and reaffirm that covenant. So when David says, My God, O God, you are my God, he is not simply acknowledging that God is sovereign, but that this sovereign God has bent himself in relationship with man. He has made a covenant with David, and David's relationship with God lives in the reality of that promise. This promise is always available to God's people. This promise that God will be their God and they will be His people. It's always available to those who seek comfort to be renewed and refreshed and reminded by such a truth. Location, wilderness, temple, castle. Status, king or pheasant. Circumstances. None of these can impede the flowing stream of heartfelt worship to God. David finds comfort in this promise and out of this covenant, a reason to worship. And this is why he says there in verse 2, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. But just as God's power and glory, he says, are felt and seen in the sanctuary where he goes and worships and gives sacrifices and can feel and know that God is present there, he recognizes that even in the wilderness they are just as earnestly sought and just as wonderfully discovered, even away from the sanctuary. 
He says, I come to the sanctuary to worship, and I behold power and glory. As there, so here. May I behold power and glory, because you are my God. You see, the desire rests not in simple longing to please God, so that he may continue to reap blessings as God's chosen king, but because God himself has made himself known through covenant to David. And David's response is to worship, to behold the power and glory of God upon whom he calls now. So friends, our worship springs from our desires. David desires God. He longs for God, earnestly seeking after God, and therefore worships him in pursuit of that desire. And these desires are fixed or set by revelation of God in his word. Look at verse 3 and 4. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And I will bless you as long as, my, as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. God's revelation of loving kindness, graciousness, mercy to David and to God's people are always going to set the desires of God's people so that worship would spring from that truth. Not as a, a longing to receive from God what we think He owes us, but rather based on the revelation of God as righteous, as good, as loving, as kind, as steadfast and merciful. Worship is shaped by our desires which are formed by God's loving kindness. He says, your steadfast love is better than life, in verse 3. This phrase, I think, captures David's vision of his mighty covenant-keeping God. Better than life. This is how strongly David longs after God. In the midst of the wilderness, he says, your steadfast love is better than life. And so I will worship you in the midst of the wilderness. I will praise you. My friends, do you experience a deep longing for God? Do you have an earnest desire to seek after God, to know this God who has made himself known to you? As you read Psalm 63, can you recall a moment, a season, in your own life and in your own faith where you have felt a longing desire after the Lord? Have you panted for God, as he would say in another psalm? Have you sought him? Does your flesh faint or yearn for the Lord to know and to worship God in truth? Well, friends, we can only desire that which we know. And the knowledge of God, as we come to know Him more clearly, though not perfectly, certainly not completely, we will produce an interest in Him. And, and by interest, I don't mean that we're vaguely interested in the goings-on of God, but a staking a claim of our lives in God's work and worth to us. The more we come to know God and see Him through His Word, 
the greater our stake or claim or interest in God becomes. The deeper and more profound our desire for God will grow. The more we'll find ourselves in the midst of our circumstances, whether good or bad, longing to worship God. But on the other hand, God, when lowly esteemed or coldly, distantly considered, will be of no comfort to grieving souls. What I mean is, when your soul is weary or grieving or troubled or vexed, under pressure and burdened by the anxieties and the cares of the world, troubled by your own sin or the sins of those around you, grieved by the darkness and the enmity of this world, and you have a low view of God and a small vision of His power, of His sovereignty, and you have not highly considered the covenant into which He enters with His saints, you will find no comfort in His Word. You will find no help in His presence. He will be cold and distant, a judge who seems to punish, rather than a father who may be disciplining. But it is instead the longing for God which must characterize the Christian's response to wilderness settings. So David says, God is my desire. It is God who says of David, he is a man after my own heart. He says this knowing full well all of David's sins. But the true and most ardent desire of David's life is for the Lord himself. Secondly, he says in verse 5 through 8, God is my delight. God is my delight. If we think about knowing God and that he might produce comfort in the midst of our circumstances, we want to ask then, what is the comfort that God brings to weary souls? When we desire God and we seek comfort for God, what is the form of that comfort? Look in verse 5. He says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So satisfaction and delight is the comfort to weary souls who desire God in the midst of troubling circumstances, in the midst of the wilderness where David now finds him. What he seeks is the presence of God, and what he gains is comfort, satisfaction, and delight in God. The feeling of gratitude and thankfulness for having been given what you so desperately wanted and needed is now overflowing in David's life. He hungered and he thirsts for God, and now he says in verse 5, my soul is satisfied as I'm, I'm feasting on the bounty of God's love and presence in my life. My stomach is full. My heart is overflowing with gratitude. My thirst has been slaked. My hunger is abated. My troubles are quieted. My strivings are ceased. Desire now gives way to delight in David's heart. He seeks, he prays to God, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I'll wake early in the morning, seeking your face diligently. Like I'm thirsty in a dry and weary land, I seek you, O Lord. And the Lord answers. The Lord comforts. The Lord revives. And he says, I'm satisfied. 
In God I delight. This is the comfort he brings to weary souls. David's heart has found its delight. And even in the midst of hardship, he finds contentment in God above all else. Certainly David needed water and food to survive. But he cared not for earthly things if he had not heavenly glories of Christ. Three lessons I think we can observe from David's delight and contentment in God in this moment. First is that a delighted and contented heart will meditate on the goodness and faithfulness of God. What does he do with his joy, his delight and satisfaction? Look in verse 6. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. He meditates on the goodness and faithfulness of God. He remembers the Lord in prayer and his faithfulness to him in his past wanderings, in his past wilderness excursions, if we'll call it that. He remembers the Lord upon his bed and he meditates on him in the watches of the night. From morning until evening, his mind is on the Lord. The vision of God he paints for himself is painted with the colors of God's faithfulness and love and steadfast commitment to his covenant. That's the vision of God before David's eyes. He meditates on the goodness and faithfulness of God. Second lesson to observe from this contentment and delight is that a delighted and contented heart will be driven to worship and to extol the mercies of God even in the midst of those troubling circumstances. Look in the next verse, verse 7. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Some of us may find it hard to sing for joy when everything around us that we've worked hard to and we've built up begins to crumble. When our job is lost, our relationships are over, when our kids are disobedient, when our family relationships are strained, when our car breaks down, whatever the circumstance may be, we find it hard to sing for joy. And yet David here, when he meditates on God's faithfulness and goodness, and when he delights in God's provision of comfort, he is driven to worship. He sings and extols the mercy and kindness of God. Thirdly, a delighted and contented heart will follow hard after God. That's sort of the older translation of verse 8. My soul clings to you, or my soul follows hard after you. That word cling there, it's the same word in the first chapter of Genesis where a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. We notice the, the, the closeness and the intimacy between David and his God of he who is in the desert and he who comforts him in the desert. I will follow hard after you. So a heart that is delighted and contented in God will follow hard after God, will seek closely behind God. He will not leave a distance or a gap between where God is and where he is contented to stay. He finds no other contentment but by being in the very nearness and presence of God. David knows this. He knows that God can be with him in the wilderness as much as in the temple. And friends, the deeper we are driven into the heart of God, the deeper we will long to go. 
a delighted and contented heart will desire to follow hard after God. What you have been satisfied on, you will continue to long for more. Your own appetite for God will grow as He continues to fill you, to delight you. Your desire and appetite for other places of nourishment will dry up and it will be God alone to whom you come for nourishment. Of course, he says, your right hand will sustain me. Your right hand upholds me, he says. And so it is not in our striving, in our strength, that we cling to God or we strive or follow hard after God, but it is God's right hand who upholds us in our striving and in our clinging. Does that make sense? It is God who will bring us there. It is God who woos us or draws us to himself. It is his right hand that upholds us in our diligence and in our earnest seeking. So your own willpower to finish that Bible reading plan, as commendable as it may be, will not bring you any closer to the presence of God unless he himself draws you and you are led by the Spirit to him. Your strivings, your wanderings, your perfect attendance at church or community groups or your knowing of every song in the hymnal does not bring you closer to God, but he who upholds you in your knowing of God. When God is your delight, you will meditate on his goodness and faithfulness and you will be driven to worship and extol the mercies of God in the midst of your circumstances and you will desire to follow hard after God, to cling to him, not under your own strength, but upheld by his power. He will support you. And so like before, you can only desire that which you perceive as desirable. You can only desire what you perceive as desirable. And so, friends, is your vision of God one of an austere, impersonal being, full of duty and obligation? Or are you regularly awakened, as as David describes, to the refreshing and to the satisfying nature of God who has given himself into communion and covenant with you. This is his nature. Meditation on the scriptures illuminates our minds to the beauty and to the majesty of God. This is a call to take up and read the word that we may see and know God in scripture and behold the power and the glory of God in scripture. And as we behold this power, we know it. And it becomes more beautiful and precious to us. But friends, God's glory is no more clearly seen than in His Son, Jesus. We need to look no further than the full revelation of God's might and glory and power and perfection. Indeed, the exact imprint of His nature and the radiance of His glory than in Jesus Christ, to whom all of the Scripture will point and speak to. In fact, if you're reading your Bible and you fail to come to Jesus, His work on the cross, His resurrection, and the power of what He has done for you, you have not fully read what is there. God's glory is no more clearly seen than in the Son, and therefore it is towards Him that all of our meditation and contemplation on the Scriptures must be pointed. In the midst of your wilderness, read Scripture and ask God to show you Christ. He Himself was in the wilderness. He himself was faithful. Like David, he was a man after God's heart, and yet he did not sin. He was the true king, the one promised to David. He sits on the throne. All of David's longings ultimately are fulfilled in Christ, who would come after him. 
God's faithfulness is seen in the sending of His Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever should believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. God is faithful, merciful, and loving to you in the sending of Jesus. As you read Scripture, meditate on God's faithfulness in the sending of Jesus. God's mercy and loving kindness is seen in the death of His Son. Consider the length and the extent to which Jesus did to secure your salvation. His own blood was shed so that you would be forgiven of the sins that you committed. The death of the innocent one for the righteousness of the sinner. We can see when we meditate on such truths like this, that our own heart would begin to delight and be satisfied, not under our own striving, but under the right hand of God who supports us. So David says, God is my desire, God is my delight. Lastly, in verses 9 through 11, he says, God is my defense. David's joy and satisfaction in God does not cause him to ignore his circumstances or to accept defeat. He's not advocating the throne now to Absalom simply because he's there and David's in the wilderness. No, his contentment does not resign him to his troubles, but rather reinforces God's continual faithfulness in delivering and preserving his people for his glory. This is what he's saying in verses 9 through 11. He's reminding himself that God is his defense, his deliverer, his helper. There's a fundamental truth that's revealed here, there in verse 9. That those who seek my life to destroy it shall go down into the depths of the earth. Verse 9. Notice the language of desire once more. Only this time it's in the heart of David's enemies. They seek to destroy David's life just as David seeks God. But ultimately from this we learn that God will give our hearts over to exactly what they want. A heart set on destruction will have it. On lust and greed will have it. A heart set on peace will have it. A heart set on salvation will have it. This is why David can say elsewhere in Psalm 37 verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. The implication being, when your delight is in the Lord, He will fulfill those desires. He will magnify and extol that delight, and you will be satisfied, for He will give you Himself. All who seek me will find me, Jesus says. But we see also, Paul can speak of God's giving the wicked over to their passions and lusts. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21 through 25, he says that although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. For claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their body among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So David can say that all who delight in the Lord will have the desires fulfilled. 
But all who delight in destruction and in lies will also have their desires fulfilled. This is sobering. This is why a vision of God is important in the midst of your wildernesses. You must know that the difficulties you struggle with are only going to be shaped in a desirable, God-honoring outcome when your desires are set on Christ. The defense and the help of God that David speaks of, it's rooted in that covenant of grace. David's covenant was made in 2 Samuel 7. Our covenant is greater. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the blood of Christ establishes a new covenant, a better covenant, with a better mediator, that is Jesus. So our help and our defense in the midst of our difficulties against the enemies who seek to do us harm, to destroy us, sin, the devil, the world, temptations, the defense and help of God is rooted in the covenant of grace which He makes with us through Christ. It is in this covenant of grace, this new covenant, that our enemies are defeated, not by our own hands or might, but ultimately by the humility of our Savior. It is He who descended into the lower parts of the earth, as Peter put it. It is He who was delivered over to the sword of the Roman government. It was He who was pursued as prey and put into the mouth of jackals. It was He who was put to death as an insurrectionist, as Absalom would be. So Jesus, the Son of God, enters into the struggle not at first as a victorious king who would destroy God's enemies, but as a humble servant and a lamb who would be destroyed by God's enemies. But the story didn't end there. It is actually in his death that the enemies meet their own. It is in his death and the plunging of his life into darkness that the powers of darkness are exposed and brought to light. That is why in the new covenant, which is in Christ's blood, that we are freed from the destruction and the enmity that was ruling over us before Christ. Because it is in Christ's death that He defeats those enemies. And He establishes the new covenant. And then we receive our help and defense against those enemies. For without such mercy, we, we are the enemies of God. We are the rebellious and seditious against the rule and authority of God, our King. We are the Absaloms against our ruler. But notice the promise of verse 11. It says, The King shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by Him that is in God shall exult. The mouths of the liars will be stopped. The promise of verse 11 is as true for us as it was for David. Indeed, it was David who is clinging to this same promise in the way that we must cling to it today, that all who swear by God shall receive glory. All who trust in Christ will be exalted. They are believing in Jesus' work on the cross to defeat their enemy, to forgive them of their sins, to restore them to righteousness, to sustain them in the wilderness. And beyond this, we must look to the second coming of Christ. Indeed, Jesus says He will return again, at which time all of God's enemies who have not yet been put down will be. And the victory that was won on the cross will be established throughout the world in perfect peace, 
and Christ will reign forever. Friends, this must be our vision of God, that God would be our desire, our delight, and our defense. That in the midst of your current struggles and circumstances, however difficult they may be, you can pray and sing with David that he has come to your aid, that Christ has defeated your enemies, that he will be delivered, they will be delivered over to just righteousness and judgment, and that you will be exalted because your trust is in Christ. This is true because you were once the enemy of God. You were once the rebellious traitor who usurped God's throne in your heart. And it is he who, instead of crushing you, sent his own son to die and who would be crushed for you. This is your vision of God. Bigger and better than life. More precious to you than any earthly treasure, food or drink. The Apostle John puts it this way. We love because he first loved us. That's the reality of the Christian life. When we desire, delight, and trust in God for our defense, we do so not because God has owned us or owed us, but because he has loved us and so changed us and transformed us that we love and worship him. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we are grateful for the, for the Son of Jesus, for the Son of God, your Son, Jesus, who has died for us, who has walked the valley of the shadow of death, who has been put out into the wilderness and suffered for our sake. He was betrayed and suffered at the hands of sinners and wicked men, though he did not sin. But Lord, upon his death, he secured for all of those who would trust in him the right to be children of God. So that in our own times of distress and troubles, as we find ourselves like David in the wildernesses of our lives, God, would we seek you as our true desire, be satisfied and contented in you as our delight, and look constantly to you for our hope, our deliverance, and our defense. We pray this and ask, as always, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue All to sing. We're going to sing the fourth song on the worship guide, and then we'll no sing the third song after the kids lessons. come back in. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Your grace, how well to deep to fathom. 